And so we're going to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're new with us, uh, part of our value of reading Scripture is that we read it, we study it, and we memorize it. And we memorize text together, and we've been memorizing Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I guess really kind of May, June, into July. And we've technically finished verse 10, but if you are anything like me, the more verses we begin to pile together, the harder it is for me to get all the verbiage right. And so we're spending multiple weeks saying the whole thing to get us practicing it and trying to continue to allow the text to be ingrained into our hearts. So whether you have it memorized or not, at least have it open in front of you. That way you can uh, either quote it or read it out loud. So everybody will be saying it out loud together. So if you mess up, none of you will be able to tell that someone out there messed up. You can always tell when I mess up because I have a mic and it gets embarrassing. The pressure is real. Week out, week in and week out. But Ephesians chapter 2, as we memorize this together, I can't even find it in my Bible. So here we go. Uh, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness Towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good job. I want to encourage you. Again, we memorize this week in and week out, and we continue to study it. And again, we're going to do for the last time Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 again next week, because we want to meditate on this text. I also want to use this text as part of today's sermon. We, uh, in July, a couple weeks ago, we started in a series in Joseph. We're taking a pause in that um, and I'll tell you what we're going to do today, but let me explain why we took a pause. I mentioned last week that I'm serving in jury duty, and I'll just be honest. It has been a busy week, and I just haven't had time to faithfully prep uh, Genesis 40 and 41, which was the text for this week. I worked on it yesterday and to last night and just didn't feel comfortable with it, and so what I decided to do was to not... I'm not preaching something necessarily new, but I know that we had been memorizing Ephesians 2. We've talked through it in parts, but we never really fully unpacked it. So here's what I want to do. I want to unpack Ephesians 2 in light of our mission statement. Our mission statement, which is over here on these banners, says that we exist to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus. That's very specific language, satisfied in Jesus. And a lot of times, not necessarily in disagreeance, but in inquisitive nature, 
I get the question, hey, shouldn't our mission be to connect people to a life saved in Jesus? Like, why do we use the language of satisfaction versus salvation? And what I want to try to do today is show that by saying um, satisfied in Jesus, we're not negating salvation, but we're actually speaking to one of the chief ends of salvation, which is for us to be reunited and fully satisfied in Christ, redeemed people who find their rest and joy in Christ. It's a statement to say that Christ didn't just save us from penalty. He didn't just save us from our judgment, as we just said in Ephesians 2, that we're under the wrath of God. He didn't just save us from that, but he saved us to something. And our statement that says he connects people to life satisfying Jesus is a statement that says that we believe Christ has saved us from our sins, forgiven us of our sins, praise God for that, but he's also redeemed us to himself to find the joy, the deepest longing that our heart seeks after, which is satisfaction in Christ. So two, two truths today, if you have uh, a fill in the blank, a handout, and we're going to look at Ephesians 2 and then eventually get to Psalm 16 to look at these two truths. Now, there's a lot of theology and a lot that can be said, but I, I really believe that these are two simplified truths, that if we can allow these two truths to be ingrained in our hearts, we could do, um, it would help us walk faithfully with Christ. So truth number one, Ephesians 2, we'll unpack it. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And and I mean this statement in light of Ephesians 2 as it relates to salvation. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so what's the problem? The problem is that we are in a state of deadness, and because of that state of deadness, and because of what we did to get to that state of deadness, we are under the wrath of God. Big problem. That we need salvation. We need to be made alive. And Ephesians 2 tells us exactly how we are saved and exactly how we go from death to life, how we go from being under the wrath of God to not being under the wrath of God. Not to be overly morbid, but I want you to imagine a cemetery for a second and imagine dead bodies in the cemetery. And we are in a state of solving the problem. There are dead people here. What can we do to make them alive? And we're going to sit here and go, I don't know if there's much we could do. Someone may suggest, you know, what if I'll go get some heat lamps? Can I warm up the bodies? Would that help? And we start thinking of all the different ideas that we might be able to come up with. And at the end of the day, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we, uh, we have the inability to see death to life take place in that manner. Well, this is precisely the situation we are in spiritually before Christ. Dead, hopeless. What are we to do? When we make this statement from Ephesians 2, and we make this summary that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, what we're saying is Jesus plus nothing else is necessary and is possible to see us go from death to life. Because look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Notice what the text does not say. But God, being rich in mercy, because of your good works and because of the ability to memorize this own passage or the ability to study scripture or the ability to show up at the church or because you were baptized or because of this or because you were nice to your brother or sister or because of you never speed or this or this or this and this. And because of all these things, he made you alive in Christ. But what does he say? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even while we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. Look at all the reasoning. The reasoning is rooted not in us. The reasoning is rooted in God. His richness and mercy and his great love for which he loved us is the reason why he chose to make us alive together in Christ. The Paul, the writer of this, you have this kind of parenthetical statement that's just by grace you have been saved right there at the end of verse 6. Uh, excuse me, into verse five. It doesn't really belong there in the order of argument. The order of argument is he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and he seated us with him. But Paul was just so excited about the reality of what has happened. He just, in the middle, just blurted out, by grace, you have been saved. He'll go on and say that in detail in verse eight, but he couldn't wait to verse eight to say the good news that by grace, you have been saved. When we talk about what we believe here at New Hope, We want to be very clear is that, yes, God calls us to good works and he calls us to be faithful to him. But in no way do we believe that our salvation, our forgiveness, our being made right with God has anything other than Jesus plus nothing. Because it's Jesus plus nothing is everything you and I need for salvation in Christ. And my encouragement to us today is that we would, in the same way, allow our hearts to leap for joy, the same way Paul did as he made this statement. He made us alive together with Christ, and then he just blurted out, by grace you have been saved. Might our hearts hear this truth, that it's not Jesus plus Jonathan's good deeds, or Jesus plus Jonathan's ability to this or that, or because Jonathan was a good brother and I was a great brother, or Jonathan plus anything else. Am I saved? Am I forgiven? Are you forgiven? You cannot earn this. This is why Paul would make it clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift given unto you. You did not earn it. You did not pay for it. In fact, you couldn't. Why? Because if it was a result of works, verse 9, you could then boast about it. Meaning you could get the glory. God is in his saving work because he loves us and cares for us, but it's also for his glory. He gets the credit. He's the hero. If you're the hero of your own story, guess who's not? Jesus. It's like a seesaw. We don't have those on playgrounds anymore. We don't have a lot of fun things on playgrounds anymore because of liabilities and lawyers and stuff. But before all that happened, there were seesaws and you go up and down. Seesaws were to my advantage as someone at this height. I could really sling it to the other side. But the idea is If you are lifted high, the other side goes down. Both you and Christ cannot be lifted up at the same time in your own life. Either you are lifted high and Christ is low or Christ is lifted high and you are low. This is the idea of one of the reasons why God orchestrated in his sovereignty salvation to be this way. One, because you couldn't do it. And two, because he gets the glory. Might we see beautifully this idea that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He is sufficient and he is all we need for salvation in this world. Now that lays the foundation for what is our mission statement 
connecting people to life satisfied in Jesus. Truth number two, not only is Jesus plus nothing equal everything, Jesus plus nothing equals enough. It's enough. What's the difference between everything and enough? Let me illustrate it the best way I know how. New York style pizza. You got a New York pizza in front of you. My wife was out of town this week. I ordered pizza three times. I think that's a record. Three times. I at least went with the small the second and the third time. First time, not so much. But I went with the small the second and the third time. If I say that I eat everything that was given to me, what does that mean? All eight slices or six slices in a small, gone, right? I eat everything that was given to me, gone. If I say I ate, and it, I ate an amount and it was enough, does that necessitate all eight slices gone? Not necessarily. Two slices would probably do the trick and be enough, you know, but the cheese is just there and it's so good. So I just keep eating, right? Some of you know, some of you know, what's the difference? Everything is this idea that it's, that's, all, that's it. Jesus plus nothing, that's all insufficient. That is everything there is for salvation. Nothing can be added to it because it is already everything. Jesus plus nothing equals enough speaks to satisfaction, It speaks to being satisfied. If I say that I ate two of the eight slices and that was enough, that means that it was enough to fulfill the longing and need of my life. It was enough in that moment until dinner came or breakfast the next morning. Wife's gone. You eat pizza for breakfast the next morning too. In Psalm 16, we started our service with this. I want to read it in its entirety. And then verses 8 through 11 are in your handout. But beginning in verse 1, it'll be on the screen, says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He's speaking to the goodness in his life, and he's saying, comparatively speaking, there is no good apart from you, God. Now, I have good things in my life, but compared to Christ, there is nothing good compared to Christ. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, and in whom all is my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's saying those who seek to be satisfied in other gods and things of this world, their what? Their sorrows will multiply. The contrast is the gods of this world bring sorrows. The God of the Bible brings satisfaction. Verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion. And my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also, my heart instructs me. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, what? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or death or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a text because as we talk about our mission, this is a text that you hear me quote often. That in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because here's what I want you to see is that you have a God who loves you so much that he saved you from the penalty of your sin, but he didn't just save you from the penalty of your sin and then leave you to be to yourself. 
but he saved you from the penalty of your sin, my sin, our sin, something we couldn't save ourselves from, but he did it in order to what? To actually give us the joy and satisfaction of our heart that led us into the sin, thinking that that would be found in something in this world. But he saved us from that penalty unto himself. See, the reward of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that you're no longer under the wrath of God, but now you are under his good grace and mercy and pleasure. Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a quiet one who will quiet you with his love and sing or rejoice over you with gladness. You have a God who loves you so much that he saved you unto himself so that the, your heart could be satisfied in him because he knows there's nothing else in this world that can satisfy the way he can. And why do these two things go together so importantly? And here's why. Because the thing that we seek to satisfy us if it is not, does not have the ability to also be our Savior, will always let us down in satisfaction. Let me say that again. The thing that we seek to satisfy us, if it does not have the ability to also be our Savior, then it will let us down in satisfaction. Meaning, money. If we seek money to save us, we're trusting in it to be our Savior. What happens when that fails? What happens when you seek a relationship to be your savior, a job or career to be your savior, this or that to be your savior? And the reality is the thing that you seek to please you must save you. And if it cannot save you, it cannot ultimately please you. So when we make the statement at New Hope that we want to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus is because we want to declare from the rooftops that Jesus and Jesus alone can save and he loves you so much that he saved you and he pours out his goodness on you. He pours out his pleasures on you for all eternity. That's not a statement to say that if you're in Jesus, you'll have everything good go in your life. But it is to say that you will have enough That you'll have what you need for joy, even despite circumstances when things don't go your way. And as we study the story of Joseph, we'll get back to in the coming weeks, we'll see that Joseph, even when things didn't go his way, that God was faithful and gracious and guided his life. So I ask you this question, what is it that you seek to satisfy your heart? What is it that your heart really believes? If I just had this, I would be happy. If I just accomplished this, I would be good to go. And the reality is, if it's anything in this world, it can never fully satisfy. If you can, adults, kids will get this. Kids, you'll understand this. Adults, let's try to remind ourselves of this. But you remember your birthday. Yeah. All right, cool. I like it. What about Christmas? You remember Christmas? You like Christmas? I'm here, yeah. Um, How many of you got something really cool for Christmas or your birthday this year? Yeah? Adults, we can remember that. We remember those moments. I can remember wanting that toy. And uh, as a parent, I can testify, it takes about to the middle of January till they're starting a, a new list of things they want. Do they not? Yeah, absolutely. And even kids, have you ever gotten a toy and never wanted another toy again? You thought you might not. But if you were to be honest, be like, hey, I got that toy and it was cool. But then I saw that toy and then I wanted that toy. Well, the reality is, is that is our hearts as it seeks the things of this world. But I want us to see that it's in Christ and Christ alone that not only do we have salvation, 
but we have our ultimate satisfaction. What does it mean to live a life satisfied in Christ? I hope that you would spend the rest of your life trying to answer that question. I hope you spend the rest of your life seeking, God, what, I, I don't want to just worship you because you're my Savior, yes, but I also want to worship you because you are my everything. You're enough for me. I don't have to have the mansion or the cars or the things of this world to be happy because, Jesus, I have rest and joy in you, and there's nothing else compared to that. That's why here at New Hope we say that we want to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus because that means, first, you must have salvation in Jesus, but then also you live daily in the rest of that salvation and the joy of that salvation. You live every single day wanting to receive from the goodness of God That's why we encourage you to read your Bible every day. Not because you have to read your Bible to be saved or not because you have to read your Bible to make God proud of you. God is proud of you and loves you because of his son. We read our Bibles to receive the joy and receive from him, to learn from him, to walk with him. We pray because we need him, but we also pray because we enjoy fellowshipping with him. See the difference? I I don't reach out to my wife because I have to. I want to. And then when I talk to her and she's out of town and my kids are out of town, I want to talk to them because I miss them and I, I, want, I want their presence to feel close to me. And I long to be with them. And when they come home, I, I give them a big hug and I embrace them because I've missed them. The same way your father seeks for you to approach him and he is there saying, I want you to spend time with me because I want to pour out my gladness and joy on you. Church family, might we be a people who understand that it's Jesus plus nothing is everything sufficient for salvation. He is all we need. But then it's also Jesus plus nothing is enough to satisfy. He's all we want. When we live understanding that Jesus is all we need and all we want, it changes everything. It gives us freedom to walk with him. It gives us freedom to face the trials and tribulations of this life. Who remembers the game of life? And I'll close with this. The Game of Life. Anybody grew up playing The Game of Life? It it was created in 1960, so many of us, it's been around a minute. What's the objective of life is in the game? Is you start, you decide whether you're going to go to college, you go to work, you get a career, but you win the game by what? Making it to the end of life with the most money. That is how you win at The Game of Life. And the creators of The Game in 1960 were pretty faithful to the to the culture of the day, believing that this is how you win at life. And, and at times, I'm not sure that our culture has it all that wrong still in the sense of that's still what the culture thinks. But in 2007, I didn't know this. I've never played this. I just did it in research for this week. Is that in 2007, they remade the game because they started noticing that people care about other things besides money. Yeah, good. And you would get credit and things for recycling. Good New Yorkers say yes, right? And if you did other environmental things, you would get credits. But they begin to notice, like, there's no way to uh, monetize a reward unless, except you got money. You kept getting money. And so one of the things they did, because they're like, well, life isn't just about getting to the end with a bunch of money. Good. I'm glad they noticed that. So what did they do? They created no end to the game. They just kept playing. You just kept playing. So, and one uh, reviewer who after the game came out, and this is what caught my attention was this article, basically talked about the life, the game of life is now aimless and meaningless because it has no end goal. You just play it. 
See, a previous generation wrongly said that game of life is all about what you can accrue in this world and in your life. The next generation said they were wrong, rightfully so, and then said, well, we don't know what to replace it with. So now you have a game that you have all these rewards and it never ends. And honestly, I'm not sure how you win. It's aimless and meaningless. And what we would say as Christians is you both got it wrong. That it's not about money, but there's still a purpose to it. And the purpose is, as we would say, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify Him with your life. Live for Him. Recognize that in eternity there are pleasures forevermore in Christ. And those pleasures are not waiting for you till tomorrow, but they are available to you today in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says that it's in the heavenly realms that you have all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That today Christ wants to pour out his goodness on your life. No matter your circumstances, no matter what you're going through, Christ desires to pour out his goodness on you. Would you turn to him, seek him, and as King David says in verse 8, would you put him before your heart and make your heart glad in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have saved us. And we thank you for your goodness. And Jesus, I seek to live a life satisfied in you. Day by day, recognizing that you are everything I need and you are enough and all that I want. But the truth is my heart oftentimes is tempted to pursue other things and sometimes gives in to those temptations. And you remind me that those things never satisfy. Those things are never enough. They might satisfy for a moment. The new car may be great, but eventually it'll break down. But your love and your salvation never breaks down. It's good for all eternity. And so Jesus, let us be a people who enjoy your creation, who enjoy it, but do not trust in it for their salvation. But we trust in you, Jesus. And we trust that you care for our hearts and you will take care of our hearts better than anyone or anything can. We trust that you can. And so, Spirit of God, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So might we be people who dwell in your presence day by day. Might we live our lives every day seeking to be in your presence to feel the goodness and joy of our salvation. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is www. Dot newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Goffles Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.